Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is our desire to give you all the glory. May it be so in us. So we hear your word and respond. Receive the glory. It's your, na your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Our sermon series for the season of Advent is what we're calling Renewed. Renewed. You can't see that word spelled out, but what you should be able to hear is a connection between the word renew and the word new. There is in Advent an opportunity to experience something new. It's not that Advent is new, it's that we might be new to Advent. 20th century theologian William Stringfellow writes this. He says, we live now in the United States in a culture so profoundly pagan that Advent is no longer really noticed, much less observed. The commercial acceleration of seasons, whereby the promotion of Christmas begins even before there is an opportunity to enjoy Halloween, is superficially a reason for the vanishment of Advent. But a more significant cause is that the churches have become so utterly secularized that they no longer remember the topic. Ouch. Our culture has no idea what Advent is or means, or Christmas for that matter, and many churches are equally impoverished of Advent's meaning and value. So for some of you here today, this could be your first Advent, or it might be at least your first Advent at Living Faith. You will find here a new frame of mind, a new liturgy, a new practice, a new way to prepare for the incarnation. For others of you, perhaps most of you, there's not really anything new today as Advent begins again, just like it does every 365 days. And instead, what you'll find today is an opportunity to renew, to renew. That prefix re comes from Latin, and it means again, or to go back. Re means repeat, to do again, to say again, to go back and relive it again. Advent is a season of re's, renew, redeem, recreate, rebuild, rewrite, reset, refill, reunite, reconcile. In fact, it's no accident that the liturgical calendar begins anew on the first Sunday of Advent. Sacred time is renewed today, not January 1, Advent 1. Wouldn't it be good for, good for us to experience that kind of renewal as well today? Over the next four weeks, our sermons are going to be focused on the renewal of four main things. Comfort, joy, presence, and our topic for today, which could surprise you and might disappoint you. Penitence. Penitence. I don't know whether you've seen this side of Father Carl or not, but he's a bit of a practical joker. He is the youngest child of five, and so perhaps that's where it came from. But regardless, he has always enjoyed adding sarcasm and pranks into whatever environment he finds himself in, whether that's the workplace or the church or the family, wherever. Many of his bedtime stories to, to me and to my siblings when we were children were the stories of his glorious pranks. As an example of his sense of humor, at the celebration of someone's birthday, Dad 
has this alternative happy birthday song that he likes to sing. It goes like this. Happy birthday. Yes, happy birthday. People dying everywhere. <laughs> Sorrow, gloom, and despair. But happy birthday. Yes, happy birthday. I realize I should have had him sing it as I hear him behind me. Now, why is this funny? Well, if you're my mom, after four and a half decades, it's not funny. For those who still might find it funny, it's funny because birthdays are supposed to be the celebration of your loved one. But instead, Dad's version of the song calls us in a very sarcastically morbid sort of way to disregard that loved one and to admit that life is really just a tragedy in a minor key. That's what it is. His version of the song transforms happy birthday into crappy birthday. <laughs> That's why it's funny. Although if we're honest, it could also very easily kill the birthday mood, couldn't it? And perhaps that's happened a time or two over the years. What does this have to do with Advent? For several weeks already, every retailer in town and every advertisement on TV has been telling us Christmas time is here, or at least the holidays are here. Let's be happy. Everything is merry and bright. And then we liturgical Christians come to church on the first Sunday of Advent, and we hear passages of Scripture read that seem to be completely tone deaf. Let me give you some of the highlights, or at least the lowlights. Isaiah 64, 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Nice, huh? Psalm 80, verses 4 to 6. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Oh, so merry. Mark 13, verses 25, 24 to 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Doozy. What is this Advent season about? This is supposedly the happiest time of the year in our society. But it's like we're here as liturgical Christians singing, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. People sinning everywhere. Pain and justice and warfare. But Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're just trying to kill the Christmas spirit, right? Isn't that what Advent is? Yeah. I appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> That's not what Advent is. It's not that Advent tries to kill the mood of Christmas. It's that Advent is the preparation in order to actually experience the mood of Christmas. Advent is not anti-cheer. Rather, it's an honest look at where holiday cheer comes from, why it comes, when it comes, and how it comes, so that when it actually comes, we might behold it for what it is, and that is infinite cheerfulness in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, something for us to experience actually and not artificially. 
This is quite countercultural, I know. We are resisting the tug of our culture to align ourselves with its secular rhythms, or at least its syncretized rhythms. And instead, we put ourselves into sync with the rhythms of our Christian faith. Listen again to William Stringfellow who writes, For all the greeting card and sermonic rhetoric, I do not think much rejoicing happens around Christmas time, least of all about the coming of the Lord. There is, I notice, a lot of holiday frolicking, but that is not the same as rejoicing. In any case, maybe outbursts of either frolicking or rejoicing are premature if John the Baptist has any credibility. He identifies repentance as the message and the sentiment of Advent, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Much of the holiday cheer around us is manufactured. It's commercialized. We know this. Everyone knows this. It's not true joy. Part of the way we get ready for the profound, enduring, true joy of Christmas is through penitence. Now, penitence is not the only or even the main focus of Advent, but it is a part. We know that Lent is a highly penitential season. As Christ fasted 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry, so the people of the church spend 40 days in spiritual preparation for Easter. In a similar way, though just not to the same degree, we are expected in Advent to heed the words of John the Baptist before we see the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. And this order of penitence before joy is actually critical to our spiritual formation. You see, if we allow ourselves to rush, rush past the spiritual preparation that Advent provides, we actually will diminish for ourselves the joy that Christmas will bring. If you ever watch historical movies or documentaries, part of what the director wants to accomplish is to help the audience enter into what the people at that time were experiencing, and especially in the order that they experienced it. The audience needs to feel the emotions that are right for each moment, whether that's fear or doubt or agony or whatever. And through that building story, the sights and the sounds, the videography and the musical scores, the director will stir up in the audience a psychological, an emotional, and a physical response so that we experience history as it was and in the right order. For example, we know, right, we know that we won World War II. We know that. But unless we can experience the horror of what that war was and what it must have felt like to not know what would happen, we can't then really imagine what the triumph is of that war being over. We just don't know how good it was that it was all done. This is part of what the liturgy and the readings and the music of Advent are designed to accomplish in us. You see, Advent calls us, on the one hand, to enter into the experience of ancient Israel, to go back into history, and to experience what they experienced as they waited for the promised Messiah. When we do that, when we put ourselves in their shoes, we learn what waiting looks like and how long it takes. And we also learn how God acts in history to keep his promises, and he does. 
And both of those things, waiting and how God fulfills his promises, matter a great deal to us. Because on the other hand, Advent, we are called to enter into the very present reality of the church. What is the church doing right now? Waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Advent is a reenactment. That's another re word for you. It's a reenactment. We reenact in Advent the anticipation of the Messiah's first Advent so that we can learn what it's like to engage with our waiting for his second Advent. In light of all these things throughout Advent, for these four Sundays, we're going to be focusing on the scripture lessons from the Old Testament in our sermons. We want to put ourselves into the shoes of those Israelites who were called to penitent yearning for God, to yearn for him with penitence. And we'll find as we do this that that's indeed our same call. This morning, I want us to look at our psalm, the appointed psalm, Psalm 80. And in this psalm, we'll find another very important re-word. Turn with me to Psalm 80. We're looking just at the first seven verses this morning. I want to read them again for us at this time so they're fresh in our minds. So Psalm 80, verses 1 to 7, says this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It's not known exactly when Psalm 80 was written, and therefore we don't know the exact circumstances that the people of God were experiencing at the time of its writing. But what is clear is that things aren't great for them. The nation's in trouble. There's likely a good bit of people sinning everywhere, pain and justice and warfare. And so what we find in the psalm is a psalm of lament. It's lament. Now, we're looking at just these seven verses, but I want to point out the structure to these verses, even though the psalm is a bit longer. First of all, notice this. In verse 1, the people lead with praise. They lead with praise for who God is. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. See, before they say anything else, what the people know is that God's worthy of their praise. He's God after all. Unless they can articulate who they are speaking to and to demonstrate that they know just how glorious and mighty he is, they probably don't need to say anything at all. Why would they? But they do know who he is. And they do offer the praise. And so should we in our prayers. The second thing we see comes in verses 2 and 3, and it's a plea. There's praise and then a plea, a plea for God's salvation. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
What this is, is an acknowledgement that not only are their circumstances not as they should be, they're not, but also they themselves are not as they should be. And if they have any hope for transformation, whether it's in their hearts or in their lives, God has to act. There's just no such thing as self-initiated salvation. It doesn't work that way. God has to restore them. And indeed, that's a prayer that God loves to hear on our lips. And moreover, a prayer he loves to answer. And so it should be on our lips, in our prayers. So, the people have offered their praise to God and they've made their plea. Next, in verses four to six, the people of God describe, they recount their plight. Praise, plea, plight. Their plight is this, God, you've been angry with our prayers. You've given us tears for our food and drink. You've made us a mockery to everyone around us. Now, it may sound to us that they're blaming God. It's not the case. They know that God caused these things to happen, but that's not blame. They know the blame rests squarely on their shoulders. They've closed their ears to God such that he would close his ears to them. They've withheld themselves from God such that he would withhold himself from them. They've tried to make a mockery out of God such that God would allow them to become the mockery. They know this is on them, but they also know the promises of God, that God will be merciful and compassionate to those who repent. And so in verse 7, they repeat their plea. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What this psalm reflects is a penitent people. It gives us a pretty good pattern for our prayer in our own times of penitence. And truly for all of us, now is one of those times. Now is one of those times. Penitence is related to and is often used interchangeably with the word repentance. The way I'd like to describe penitence this morning is this. Godly sorrow for ungodly sin. Godly sorrow for ungodly sin. To be a truly and deeply sorry person, to be sorry over sin, that's a mark of penitence. In the Book of Common Prayer, our Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the rite of confession with a pastor, where someone might come to a pastor and confess their sin, what that's called in the prayer book? The reconciliation of penitence. A person who is penitent, someone who is sorry for their sin and wants to be reconciled to God, can come and experience his forgiveness. Likewise, in the daily office, morning and evening prayer, we confess our sins, and in the process we say this, written in the Book of Common Prayer, Restore us, restore all who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. Restore all those who are penitent. That's God's promise. He's going to do so. Restore us, O God. Do you know what the opposite of penitence is? Obstinance. It's obstinance. An obstinate person cannot 
and will not apologize with godly sorrow. An obstinate person may not feel that there is anything to feel sorry for. An obstinate person neither seeks forgiveness nor knows how to extend it to those who have wronged them. The way the Old Testament often describes this as as stiff-necked. The way that Jesus often describes this is hard-hearted. Neither is a compliment. And neither should expect anything good from God in the words of Jesus. If that's the case, if obstinance is a true, real obstacle, then how might Advent help us to become rightly penitent before God? I think there are many ways in which that's the case, but I want to just share a couple of those with you this morning. First of all, Advent calls us to behold the transcendence of God in preparation for the imminence of his incarnation. It calls us to behold the transcendence of God in preparation for the imminence of his incarnation. Meaning, we behold God's unfamiliarity before we ever behold his familiarity. See, God's not like us. That's transcendence. He's holy and mighty in all his ways. His perfect divinity is beyond all that exists. The mystery of his trinity, none can fathom. Don't let a pastor tell you otherwise. In Advent, we give special attention to these truths so that we might take a better posture towards God's unfamiliarity. There are several ways in which the liturgy in Advent actually increases our attention to God's transcendence. And I encourage you to search for those moments throughout the season. You see, the God of Psalm 80, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, that is the God who was made like us in our humanity. That God. When through Advent we have truly considered the majesty of God most high, then we can actually behold the glory of God with us. God in flesh. Second of all, Advent gives us a clearly defined moment to express the penitence that we've already been feeling. It gives us a clearly defined moment to express the penitence we've already been feeling. Some of you here this morning feel that God has been deaf to your prayers. You feel that you've shed more tears recently than you knew was possible. You feel full of guilt and shame for what's become of your life and what people must think of you. Some of you simply do not know what to do with these feelings. And the thought of holiday cheerfulness fills you with dread. I've got good news. Good news. In Advent, we find a place for our penitents to move beyond the perfunctory and into the passionate. When we gather as a church for worship and when you gather yourself up daily to devotions with God, Advent provides sacred space to speak our penitence, to sing our penitence, to pray our penitence, to enact our penitence. Now is the time. If of late you've been overwhelmed by your sorrow for sin, 
I urge you to make it a goal. Make it a goal to express your penitence as earnestly as possible over the course of these weeks. And the reason I would ask you to do that is from the place of renewed and earnest penitence, what you will find is a very well-lit pathway towards the other things we'll be talking about throughout Advent, namely comfort, joy, and God's presence. God knows you need those things, but those things cannot and do not come without penitence. This leads us to the third thing that Advent can do for us. Advent reveals the need of penitence which we have not already been feeling. It reveals the need of penitence which we have not already been feeling. Some of you are not feeling particularly penitent today. You've forgotten, or perhaps you never realized that if it weren't for your sin, Christmas, the sending of God's Son into the world, would not have been necessary. Or it's possible that you know these things appear, but, but you become so distracted by the frenzy of the world or so downtrodden by its tragedies that you have forgotten your identity. You've forgotten what you were meant to be as a new creation in Jesus Christ. What Advent can do for you is to be a mirror. To be a mirror. Listen to what pastor and storyteller Walter Wangeren writes. He says, in mirrors, I see myself. But in mirrors made of glass and silver, I never see the whole of myself. I see the me I want to see, and I ignore the rest. But mirrors that hide nothing hurt. They reveal an ugliness I'd rather deny. And yet, only when I have the courage to fully look to clearly know myself, even the evil of myself, will I then admit my need for healing. Mirrors that hide nothing hurt me. But this is the hurt of purging and renewal. And these are the mirrors of dangerous grace. Dangerous grace. Advent is this kind of mirror. In this season, you'll be invited, you'll be implored to look carefully into your soul and to inquire whether or not you are actually ready for the arrival of King Jesus. Are you actually ready? Christ is coming, but some of you are not ready. Not even close. You're not prepared. Your heart is not right with God. It's not right with those in your lives. Advent is a gracious warning. It's a gracious warning. When I wake up in the morning, my hair is wild, my mouth is dry, my teeth are slimy, and my face droops from sleep. If I were to have left the house this morning in that state and made my way here to you, I would no doubt be pretty ashamed and you'd have nothing special to look at. But the mirror in my bathroom was a grace for me today, just like it is every day. This morning, it reminded me, I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready. 
Advent is like a gracious mirror, not because you will like what you see, but precisely because you won't. The obstinate person looks at the ugliness of his or her soul and says, whatever. The penitent person sees the same ugly reflection and says, Lord, make me clean. In other words, restore me, O oh God. Restore me to what I was before sleep. The truth is that all of us are in need of that prayer. Without exception, restore us, O oh God, which means that all of us are in need of renewed or new penitence. There is something in your life, I guarantee it, in your mind, in your heart, in your behavior, in your body, in your relationships, maybe right there in your family, that needs restoring. Psalm 80 provides us with a perfect way to engage with God at the start of Advent. It begins with praise for God's transcendent glory. It brings us to the humble acknowledgement of our plight apart from him. And then it brings us to the penitent plea that his salvation will be seen and felt in our lives. Restore us, O God. Restore us. Not only is Psalm 80 a perfect pattern for the start of our Advent prayers, it's also the very pathway to Christmas. God's answer to the plea, restore us, O God, is in every way the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. His people said, restore us, O God, and God said, here's my Son. Here's my Son. And that's not just Christ's First coming in the incarnation. It's also his second coming in glory. When Christmas finally comes at the end of this Advent season, the songs that we sing will not be songs of sarcasm or minor keys. They will be true songs of joy because we've done the work to get ourselves ready for the coming of the King. Amen?